Thanks, guys. That was awesome. Just a couple of minor housekeeping issues before we open up our Bibles. One, I got a couple of gifts this week, and I just want to say thank you. They were anonymous gifts, so thank you very much. That was a huge blessing to me. I'm kind of trying, you know, I'm, I'm like a problem solver, so in my mind I'm thinking, does this mean the congregation wants me to preach for an hour every week? Because I, that was like the longest sermon I ever preached. Okay, all right. So you want, we're going to go for an hour and a half today. Um, just kidding. I'm going to try to rein it back in. Um, I did think part of it might have been because I shared a sad story. So again, thank you for just your kindness to me. That was a real blessing. But then I also thought, maybe you got me and Chris mixed up because it's Chris's birthday in two days. So I want to say happy birthday to Chris and say redirect your gifts that direction. Um, so happy birthday, Chris. I think he's like 57 now. I don't know. Okay. We're very excited. So anyway, thank you guys for your kindness. Um, we're going to spend some time looking at the scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up. If you don't have a Bible, grab one nearby. Uh, we wanna, if, if you don't have a Bible, we want to get you in the practice of opening it up and looking at it with us. We spend time every week studying the scriptures because we believe that the scriptures speak with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So we want to spend time listening to him, understanding who he is. Jesus even says that as we see him, we're going to see the Father. So we're going to understand God by understanding Jesus. And so that's why we've called the series, Who is Jesus? As we're going through the Gospel of John. If you don't uh, have it open already, we're going to be on John 7. Is that right? Yeah, John 7 today. Uh, and that can be around page 890 or 891 in the Black Bibles, if you want to flip there. So 890, 891 in that, in that area. It's John chapter 7. I kept kind of flip-flopping as to which part I was going to use, um, which part of the text I was going to read today, because it's kind of all about one thing, but just a kind of interesting structure. It's a real confusing structure for the whole chapter with a really crystal clear middle part. So I'm going to kind of focus on this middle part today and then make reference to the other sections of John chapter 7. The main idea is living water. Jesus is saying that we find the living water that we need for our souls, our, our thirsty souls, our dry souls, our dying souls. We find that living water in Him. We have to come to Him. And the flip side of that is we often go to the wrong things, right? In our thirst, we often pursue the wrong things. Whenever I think about being really thirsty, I remember um, a great scene from literature. There was a movie called The Three Amigos. Um, in Spanish, that's The Trace Friends. So a little translation for you there. The Three Amigos is <laughs> a great movie from my childhood, maybe high school. I don't know when it came out. But there's this one scene where the three amigos are going through the desert. And so, of course, it's very hot, they're very dry, they're running out of water, so it pictures in a really graphic way that thirstiness, that dryness. The first one grabs his canteen, and they're just kind of panting. He, he grabs his canteen and, and tips it back, and just one, you know, slow-mo drop comes down, just one little drop, and he's so thirsty, and he just kind of has this desperate look on his face. The next one is also thirsty, grabs his canteen, and he throws it back, and sand comes out. And I think that sand going into his mouth and then spitting that and coughing that back up, that's a picture often with, of how we try to satisfy our thirst, right? Like God says, you need me. God invites us to himself, but we run to these other things to satisfy that dryness in our soul and we, we only make it worse. And so I want you to be thinking about that today as we look at the text. What are the things that I've been running to to satisfy that dryness in my soul instead of coming to the living water? Just kind of think about that in your own heart, in your own life, because I think we all run to different things. We, we try to satisfy ourselves in different ways. Jesus is saying, come to me. Come to me to satisfy that thirst. What I want to do is I want to start with verse 1, and then 
I'm going to read a few verses, and then we're going to skip to verse 37, okay? So we're going to start in chapter 7, verse 1. I'm going to read about 10 or 11 verses to set us up, and then we're going to jump a few paragraphs, all right? So starting in verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So this is an important setup for the chapter, right? People wanted to kill Jesus. Jesus is the living water, and what do they want to do? They want to kill him. So look at verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. This is a festival of agriculture and water. So the festival of booths, the feast of booths was at hand, verse 3. So his brothers said to him, Leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time's always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Translation, the world is drinking sand and I'm saying, hey, stop drinking the sand, come to the living water, and it hates me for saying that. And so verse eight, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Verse 10, this is where it gets interesting. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. That just gives you a little taste of the confusing nature, the mysterious nature of this text. This big, like, no, I'm not going up to this feast. You go up to this feast. I'm not going up to this feast. And then later, he did go up to the feast. But he did it privately, not publicly, right? So there was this drive. His brothers wanted him to show himself, to build the movement. They, we would assume, because they were not believers, the text says, they wanted a bigger following so that they could be a part of this tidal wave of popularity, so that they could have more power themselves. And so that's what they wanted Jesus to do. They wanted Jesus to have more power so they could have more power. And the text says they didn't really believe in him. They're just trying to get him to build a movement. So he did go up. He just went up privately, not publicly. Okay, so he went up, and I'm going to skip over a lot of the confusion, a lot of the interesting things back and forth there, and then jump to verse 37. So I'm going to have to flip my page. Verse 37 says this, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified when they heard these words some of the people said this really is the prophet others said this is the christ but some said is the christ to come from galilee has not the scripture said that the christ comes from the offspring of david and comes from bethlehem the village where david was so there was a division among the people over him some of them wanted to arrest him but no one laid hands on him so I, I want you to see there's some confusion surrounding the person of Jesus. There's a very simple call. Jesus says, come to me. You will never be satisfied unless you come to me. And what's the response? Every kind of response you can imagine. People wanted to kill him. People wanted him to turn it into a political movement. Some people thought he was just a prophet, but not really the Christ. Other people knew he was the Christ. Other people wanted to lay hands on him and arrest him. There's just confusion swirling all around who Jesus is. Anybody here seen the movie Dunkirk? This is my second illustration for the opening, okay? We're going to do a double introduction today. You seen Dunkirk? 
I went to see the movie Dunkirk. One of the amazing things about the movie Dunkirk, recommend it, great movie. Um, the movie, though, is kind of shot and directed like a ride. That's the best way I can describe it. It's like getting on a roller coaster. That's what the movie is supposed to be like. Purposefully, he shot it in such a way that you could experience the disorientation and the confusion of being there. Now, there are pluses and minuses of that, right? Because the other way you could have shot in the movie, and I'm sure there have been other movies that do it this way, where you just exposit clearly what happened. There was a miracle that day. People prayed. God saved England from other, utter destruction that day, right? There, so there's kind of this clarity about how you could describe what happened or you could try to experience it. And in today's text, we kind of have both. So I encourage you to go back and read the text, kind of meditate over the text this week. There's this crystal clear clarity. God is saving us and Jesus says, come to me for salvation. I'm the only way you'll ever be satisfied. And then you read the rest of the chapter and it's like confusion, confusion, disorientation. People going this way, people going that way, people fighting. It's a really interesting text, just, just from a literary standpoint. But again, the, the literary style that John's writing is to drive us to this main central point where Jesus says, come to me. If you're thirsty, come to me. So let me pray for us and then we'll try to unpack this more. God, thank you for your word. And we trust that when it's crystal clear, you want us to hear that crystal clear call. We trust even, Lord, that when it's confusing, that you want us to relate a little bit to that confusion and ask ourselves, where, where am I in the mix? Am I the one that wants to see Jesus dead because he's infringing on my rights or my systems? Or am I the one that really hopes in Jesus that he is the Christ? Am I the one that's kind of on the fence that's not sure? Lord, help us to see where we are. But God, I pray for all of us that we'd, we'd see who you are and we'd see your invitation to satisfy our souls in you, that you are the true living water. Pray that you'd help us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus says he's the living water. He's the, he's the hope for the world. We're dry, we're parched, we're needy, we're hurting. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm the only one that can help you with that. I'm the only one that can satisfy you, that can, can set what's wrong right now in your life. And so as we march through, I want to kind of set up the, the outline in this way, focusing more on verses 37 through 44, that in the Old Testament, we see incredible promises of living water. And so we, we don't want to miss that. And we get a lot of that from the festival itself. The festival was a prescribed festival. God said, here's a kind of party that I want you to have. If you're going to be my people, I'm going to give you certain parties that you should celebrate. And that party was all about helping us see the promise of living water. And we're going to see the, the particular person of living water and Jesus himself, the Trinity, but Jesus particularly calling us to come to him as the person that provides that living water. And then finally, we're going to kind of look at the Holy Spirit a little bit, the practice. I know it's three Ps today, so sorry about that if that bugs you, but three Ps today, promises, person, and then the practice. Like, what does that look like in our daily life to, to come to the water, right? To continue to satisfy ourselves and our thirst in, in who Jesus is. So the first one is the promise of living water. We have this promise of living water. Uh, I want to go back again to verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says, Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Booths, uh, like tents, think like living room fort, right? That kind of thing. Camping, uh, sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles, which is another word for tent. Um, I think it's Sukkot. Sukkot, I don't know how to say it. Uh, the Jewish festival. Um, and so this festival was about kind of physically setting up tents, booths, and camping in Jerusalem, okay? 
So a lot of you enjoy camping together for family vacations. I, I hear that's fun. That's not something my family like to do really, but um, camping, kind of roughing it, right? So that was a part of this festival. And then the time of year, it was the fall festival for the Jews, right? Every culture celebrates the seasons, right? It's just a thing we do. You either celebrate the seasons in a way that doesn't glorify God or you celebrate the seasons in a way that glorifies God, right? So in the Old Testament, God gave them very specific ways to celebrate the seasons. He's like, here's how I want you to celebrate the seasons. So in their fall festival, they would celebrate and remember their Exodus time by camping, right? So they'd remember this kind of sojourning time when God was pulling them out of slavery and they were camping. And in that, they were to remember and celebrate God's provision that he had given them living water, water out of the rock, all these different stories we see in the Old Testament. And also they would remember and celebrate and look forward to the prophetic future, right? All the prophets said, water is coming. So in this festival, the festival of booths, the feast of tabernacles, the whole point of it was to remember that God provided, right? They would tie it to the season. God provided crops again. Thank you, God, that you gave us crops. They would then specifically celebrate that God had given them water. So I just, I'm trying to lay the picture here that all these things were layered on top of each other, right? And so it's a fall festival where they celebrate, God gave us food again. Then they're looking back and say, you know what? When God first formed our nation in the Exodus, called us out of slavery, he took care of us, he fed us, he gave us water. And then they're looking forward and they're saying, you know what? In the future, God is going to permanently take care of us. There will be no more tears, no more pain, no more crying. And all of these Old Testament promises centered around this living water, right? You have these visions in Ezekiel and in other parts of the scripture. You see it in the future in uh, Revelation, which of course hadn't been written yet in the Old Testament. But you see these promises of this living water flowing out of Jerusalem. Uh, a really beautiful key passage is in Isaiah 58, 11. It says, you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. That's the kind of promise that God gave to his Old Testament people. And so Jesus is entering into that context, right? It's in this festival where he's celebrating, he's remembering, the rest of God's people are remembering, God said he would do this. God promised he would provide the living water that we need. He just did it physically with rains so that the harvest uh, would be plentiful. And, and now it's being fulfilled. Jesus is calling us to see in him. A couple other cross-references if you want to look these up. Ezekiel 47 is a good one about living water. Zechariah 13 um, there are also prayers in Nehemiah when they rebuilt Jerusalem. There are these prayers there where they were remembering God's provision of water out of the rock in the Exodus time. So you can kind of layer all these together so that when Jesus says in verse 37, so skip ahead to verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. We see that on the last greatest day of this feast, Jesus is tying in exactly what he's saying to what they're celebrating. You see that? So in this feast, for hundreds of years, they've been saying, someday God's going to provide living water so that we can come to him and drink. And Jesus is saying, here I am. Come to me and drink. That's the invitation. It's interesting, it says later on, as the scriptures have said, it's not one verse. It's like the whole thing. It's the entire Old Testament, right? As the scripture, all of it, has said, this living water is coming, and Jesus steps into that, the last and greatest day of the feast, and he says, I, I'm, I'm the way God is doing this. Jesus is saying, it's happening through me. And we have to see this fulfillment of these promises, promises that we've been longing for, promises that we long for as well. 
we're invited to satisfy our thirst in, in Jesus and Jesus alone. I remember when my kids were little, uh, I worked for a travel agency, and we did a lot of work at Disney World and other parks and stuff. So I got to go to Disney World with my kids more often than the average family, I think. It was like working vacation, you know. So we got to bring them along and got to take my, uh, my firstborn once when she was really young, and then when the second one was born, he got to go a few years later. And so there was this joy in describing the promise of what Disney World would be like to the kids, Right? You could explain this. You could try to describe it as you're driving on this journey. This is what it's going to be like, and it's going to be really beautiful, and it's going to be really fun. Now, we stopped short of saying it's going to satisfy every spiritual longing in you, right? We didn't say that, but we did say it was going to, it's going to be fun. It's going to be great. We're going to have fun together as a family. So there's this promise that my children were enjoying and looking forward to the fulfillment, right? And even my older one got to get in on that kind of promise-making because she had been there before and she's now telling the younger one about what it's going to be like, right? So now she's passing on the promise. And it was a really beautiful thing, right? And along the way, they would ask the typical thing in the van on the 20-hour journey, right? Like, are we there yet? Yeah. How much longer, (laughs) right? And that's the same kind of thing we ask, right? That's the same thing we should be asking to our Heavenly Father. So so I guess I want to turn this into a question. Are you asking your Heavenly Father, are we there yet? How much longer, Daddy? When are we going to get there? And you don't want to be like the cynics, right? So again, I'm, I want you to go back and read chapter 7 in, in completion to see all the different reactions. There's so many different reactions to Jesus. One of them is the cynical reaction of, he can't, he can't really be the one, right? We know better. He's supposed to come from here. He's supposed to look like this, or he's supposed to talk this way. They, They have preconceived notions of what the satisfaction of these promises are supposed to look like. So instead of saying, Daddy, are we there yet? Daddy, how much longer they're like, I don't even believe we're going. I don't don't think this is really happening, right? The cynicism. Our call as followers of Christ are to have hope, to, to look up at our Heavenly Father from the back seat of the heavenly minivan, right? and be like, Daddy, are we there yet? Are, are we going to make it? Here's a picture. There we go. Smiles, happiness. I know you're not always smiling when you're riding in a minivan with kids, but <laughs> it's a nice, hopeful picture. Um, the whole Old Testament is about this. That's the big point here. There's this promise of living water that the Father has made. It's interesting, th- this outline too. You could kind of divide this up like a Trinitarian outline, right? The Father promises the Son fulfills in his person and then the Holy Spirit enables us to enjoy that in an ongoing way. Um, So we see the the promises of living water in the Old Testament. The next thing we'll see is the person of living water in Jesus. Um, Interesting quote I read this week about the person of Jesus. I'd seen this before so I kind of remembered this and went and found it again. Einstein, I've always been fascinated by Einstein, one of the you know greatest scientists that ever lived, was not a follower of Christ um, but was fascinated by Christ and I think everyone is, even those that don't follow Christ are fascinated with him. So again, kind of fulfilling that picture of like, who are you? Where are you on that spectrum? Because all these different kinds of reactions to Jesus are displayed in the text this morning. All kinds of people who are like, maybe, I'm not sure. No, I hate him. I want to kill him. Yes, I think I'm going to follow him, but he scares me. You know, there's like this whole range of ways that we can react to Jesus. Einstein said this. He said, as a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud, the Old Testament. I'm a Jew but I'm enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus, his 
personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. I just thought that was a fascinating quote, right? Like, even people that don't follow Jesus know there's something there. There's, there's something there. Don't miss it. If you're like Einstein and you're like, yeah, there's something there, don't, don't stop like Einstein did and say, but my science doesn't allow me to go any farther. Or my tribe as a Jew doesn't allow me to go any farther. Keep going. Keep investigating him. That's why we're spending time looking at the person of Jesus this year in the Gospel of John so we can get to know him better. So again, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the greatest day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. It's fascinating. Jesus is both giving the invitation and Jesus is the invitation. Jesus is giving an invitation, right? He's saying, come on, come to me. Jesus is the very invitation himself. There's like this compelling thing about Jesus. When you look at Jesus, you can't help but want to look at him more. The person of Jesus stands out. The person of Jesus, um, he's, he's the pivot point, right? Like in this, if you see this as a Trinitarian outline, the Father promises, the Spirit kind of delivers in an ongoing practice of the spiritual life. The Son is the very person that everything else is centered on. He's the center of it all, the pivot point of, of history, right? I mean, we basically count years based on the birth and death of Jesus, Right? The coming of this person, the person of living water. Um, the, the Navigators are a ministry that one of our elders is involved in. I was discipled by this ministry, a fantastic discipling ministry, a ministry that tries to train people in their walk with Jesus. And they have an illustration called the wheel. And it looks like a wheel, right? And the tire, so to speak, of the wheel is the obedient Christian in action, right? Like just the spiritual life where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, is obedience, the obedient Christian life in action. Uh, and then there are spokes of the wheel. There's a structure to this wheel. It says this is kind of what obedience looks like. It looks like witnessing to other people about who Jesus is. It looks like fellowshipping, partnering with other people uh, in the church, being a part of uh, the community of the faithful. There are the up and down spokes of prayer, corresponding, talking to God, praising God, knowing God. And then the lower one is the Word. Seeing God in the Word, studying Him in the Word, seeing Him revealed through the Word. But the most important part of the wheel is Christ, the center. And there are memory verses the navigators are set up so you can memorize verses for all these different components. I had a friend that had been trained by the navigators, had been a part of that ministry for many years. Uh, and I saw this transition, really transformation in his life that was, was amazing. Um, he used to focus on developing the person of the disciple, right? So he used to really focus his training on obedience and developing the skills of practicing those four spokes. If you want to really develop the Christian person, that person needs to be witnessing. That person needs to be fellowshipping. That person needs to be spending time in the Word. That person needs to be praying. And, and that's right, right? That is obedience. That is the law that God calls us to. But there was this flip that took place in his own spiritual life and in his training of others. He, he realized that all of that was much easier when you focused on Christ being the center of your life. When you focused on the person of Christ more than you focused on the, the person of the Christian, it was like this switch was flipped and everything else worked better. It made more sense. And that's what I want to call us to as well. Jesus is saying, come to me. Don't obey so that you will know me. Come to me and I'll teach you to obey. And we've got to make sure we've, we've got that in the right order. The hub of the wheel is where the power comes from. That's what drives any 
wheel. And so in this illustration, Christ is the hub. Christ is the center, the, the person of living water. He calls us to satisfy our souls in Him. Again, look at some of the reactions. I'm just kind of cherry-picking some of the reactions here. I want you to go back and read more of them this week. But at verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ come from Galilee? question is, who do you say He is? Do you know who Christ is? Do you know what He calls you to? Do you Do you understand that he's the living water, that he's the person that provides salvation? The way this is explained as the rest of this book unfolds is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he took the punishment. During our time of confession, Loris explained this so beautifully. There's this kind of double beauty of the cross that Jesus takes our punishment and takes away our guilt. He's he's paid for the sin that we are guilty of. He took our place. But he also clothes us in his righteousness. He covers our shame and nakedness. And I think kind of depending on the culture you grew up in, depending on the way you're wired, you might think more in the banking terms of I owe a debt. Jesus paid that debt. He died for your sins. And he rose from the dead giving you the unending riches of the inheritance of the Son of God. That belongs to you now. But he also covers our shame. You don't have to be ashamed anymore. I know for some of you, just the shame and the desire to hide is much more profound than the concern about uh, how much debt you owe, right? He covers your shame. He gives you his righteousness. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's the promise of the cross. That's the promise of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the person of living water. The last thing we want to see then is the practice of living water. What does it look like to actually work this out in practice? What does it look like to really then live this out? to live this satisfying of our thirst, coming to Jesus when we feel dry, instead of drinking sand, drinking the living water. What does that look like for us to to practice this? He centers this around the Holy Spirit. Again, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, so this was like the high point of the feast, this was the day when they would literally march in with water in golden pitchers, right? It was a very water-focused worship festival, And that's when he chooses to stand up and say this, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Understand what he's saying. He's like, I know right now you're giving thanks to God for providing rain for your crops, and you're hoping that someday God will give living water to you. And that's where he stands up and says, come to me. Come to me and drink. In verse 38, he says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So this word believe is also usually translated faith. Three ways we say that in English. Faith, belief, and then trust. I I like trust. Y'all know if you've been around much, I push trust harder because believe and faith have kind of become religious words. We put in a separate religion box, right? And it's easy to maybe misinterpret that or think we know what they mean. Do you trust Jesus? Are you relying on him instead of yourself? That's what he's inviting you to. And he says, if you do, as the scripture has said, not just one verse, but all of the Old Testament has promised this, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's interesting, the exact translation um, in the Greek is out of his belly, or out of his belly button. Um, So I found this really interesting ancient Greek sculpture. There's a type of meditation in a lot of different religions, all various forms of paganism, 
where we focus on ourself. Sometimes it's called navel-gazing. Have you ever heard that, right? So literally, that's what these guys are doing. They're navel-gazing. They're staring in at themselves. And I, I want you to understand this is different. This is a promise that from within, the rivers of living water will flow. But it's not an invitation to trust in yourself or your own belly. You're trusting in Jesus. You're coming to Him. And as you trust outside of yourself and who Jesus is, then this thing begins to come out of you. The Holy Spirit indwells you and and flows out of you and becomes a blessing for others. You now have something to share. You have something to hope in the dryness. We talked about this when we looked at John 6 last week and when we looked at John 4 several weeks ago. This is not a promise that you will never sense dryness again. This is a promise that you'll know where to go every time it happens. And so I think one of the most beautiful pictures of what this actually looks like is everything in the New Testament that talks about how the Holy Spirit fills us and how the Holy Spirit helps us through suffering and pain as we pray and continue turning to Him again and again, not turning to ourselves. Right? So what does this look like? In suffering, you're tempted to go, oh, well, let me look at me. What have I done? How can I fix this, right? Navel-gazing. Instead of looking up at him and saying, I'm not, I'm not the hope here, Jesus. You're the hope. And so we're called in our suffering to look outside of ourselves and look to him. And as we look to him and trust in him, the Holy Spirit will overflow from within us. The Holy Spirit will come from within. And so this is this ongoing practice. Here's how he describes it in verse 38, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Um, literally in Greek, it, it said it was not yet Spirit. Um, I think one of the ways you could translate that is it wasn't yet the age of the Spirit. Um, so this can be a complex kind of systematic theology thing where you know you go you need to go back and and read all the different places that the Spirit's talking about. Um, So there's this sense in which anyone who trusts God has the Spirit within him, right? Um, But there was a real sense in which something different happened historically when Jesus died and rose again and gave the Spirit in a new way to his people. And so we have to balance that out. Um, I think there there are two twin errors. Like, Like one twin error is God worked in the Old Testament in such a radically different way that like grace didn't even exist. Well, we already know that extreme is not true because of the, pr- the extensive promises in the Old Testament of God saying, come to me, trust me, living water is coming. You can trust me. Right? So we know God had grace and there was faith in the Old Testament. Galatians makes that real clear where Paul says, hey, look back at Abraham. He trusted as well. We have the same pattern going on in our life. Right? So, so we know there was grace and faith in the Old Testament, but we also can go to the extreme of saying, it's all the same, right? like flattening it all out. There is absolutely no difference. Well, we just we know there are differences, right? And here's one of those places where it's pointing out the difference. There's a difference and there's a greater, fuller, bigger way in which the Spirit is distributed now in the church age or the age here, he's saying, the age of the Spirit. So we live in that time now because of Jesus, the pivot point of all of history, the person of living water, dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead. And when you read a lot of these other passages like John 14, you see that actually what Jesus is promising in the giving of the Spirit is the giving of himself. So the Trinity can confuse us, right? Because there's this uh, reality that God is one God, so he's perfectly one, but three distinct persons that interact with each other within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We sometimes 
say uh, one what and three who's is kind of one way to summarize that. One God, three persons. Um, but again, remember, this, the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. It's the Spirit of God. And so Jesus, when He goes to be with the Father, when He goes up into heaven, He's giving the Spirit. He's giving us Himself. So I just want to be careful that we don't separate that out too much because our relying on the Spirit and the Spirit flowing from within us is actually us relying on Christ and Christ flowing from within us. A couple of cross-references that tie this all together pretty clearly. Acts 2 talks about how that works in history and how the exaltation of Jesus is the giving of the Spirit and those things go together, right? The more Jesus is lifted up, the more the Spirit is present in our lives. And so here's the thing we want to guard against. You want to guard against an obsession and a fascination with the things of the Spirit, the signs of the Spirit, like needing the second blessing and more Spirit and, you know, waving of Spirit flags instead of centering it on Jesus himself. So they're just kind of weird extremes we can go to. And also, Ephesians 1 clarifies that if you have the Son, you have the Spirit. So I want to be careful. I know some of you come from different backgrounds that would encourage bigger, uh, more crazy manifestations of the Spirit, right? And I'm not saying those things don't happen. I'm just saying we need to understand that the central thing that we should long for is knowing Jesus by faith, which means the Spirit is in you. Ephesians 1 says the Spirit seals you when you trust in Jesus. You have the Spirit. And so some people get this out of whack by saying, oh, you, you don't really have the Spirit until you have these kind of miraculous manifestations of the Spirit. That's not biblically true. Can God give you miraculous manifestations? Sure, God can do whatever he wants to, right? That's great. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I'm just saying make sure you understand you got the Spirit if you've got Jesus. If you trust him, then the Spirit is within you, satisfying this thirst. And so, don't navel gaze, but continue to turn to God. Stop looking at yourself, but but look out at him. Remind yourself of the cross and who he is and what he has done for you. Keep setting your heart back on him again and again. Keep turning to him in faith. Romans 8 is a great place to just camp out. And you're like, what does this look like? Romans 8 says it, it looks like suffering. It looks like groaning along with all of creation. And as you recognize that the rest of creation is groaning just like I am for this whole work to be finished, you can keep turning back to God and saying, God, help me. I need you. I'm groaning. I'm suffering. Daddy, how long? Daddy, are we there yet? And as you entrust yourself to him, that that is the spirit at work in your life. That's the practice, turning to him in prayer. One of my favorite prayer spirit verses in uh, Romans 8.26. Romans 8.26 says it this way. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Saying we're waiting. We're waiting for God to finish what He started. Philippians promises He will do that. Romans describes the experience. God, I'm longing. I'm still suffering. I still live in a relationship that's messed up. I still live in a body that's sick. I still live in a world of evil. So it's not all finished yet, but I have the person of Jesus residing within me, which gives me the power of Jesus to keep trusting him, which means even when I don't know what to say, the Spirit prays for me. That doesn't mean don't try to pray, right? (laughs) You, You pray, but you pray with joy, trusting like, 
I don't even know how to do this, right? Like, God, I don't even know what to say. My wife and I were praying a prayer like that last night. And I was like, Lord, I don't, I don't have the words, but just help us to trust you. you. You know what to do in this situation. So we run to him again and again, trusting that he's good, trusting that he loves us. So we'll, we'll wrap up here. Again, I just want to encourage you to go back and, and read just all the different reactions. There are all these different ways that they react, right? I want to go back even to the brothers. The brothers, they are one form of unbelief. They're a form of unbelief that's coming alongside Jesus and acting like you're on Jesus' team. That's a scary one for a lot of church people, right? Like we're here in the Jesus place. We're doing the Jesus thing. But do we really want Jesus to be glorified or do we want our movement to be glorified? Do we want our team to look better? It says that they didn't really believe. That's, so con- that's confusing, right? Again, pray in the Spirit. Jesus, help me figure this out. Help me want your glory more than my own glory. And then you see the extreme version of that, the people that oppose Jesus, right? The Jewish leaders who literally wanted to kill him because he was messing with their system. They had a good religious system where they were getting the praise of men, where they were impressing other people. They had taken God's rules. They'd added rules to it. They were fulfilling the rules. They were competing with others and edging others out and saying, look at my glory. Look at how good I am. Look at how great I am. And in that process, when Jesus comes along and says, all of that is just sand. I'm the living water. They wanted to kill him because they had a system that was working for them. And then, of course, there's everything in between. There's confusion. Who knows? There's a lot of different reactions we can have to Jesus. He's encouraging us to come to him. That uh, Three Amigos movie when they're, you know, running out of water, it's really funny because the last guy actually has water, right? So the first two Amigos, the friends, uh, the first two guys are out of water. They're thirsty. The third one has plenty of water. It's almost miraculous. It seems like crazy, right? He just chug, 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 chug. He's just drinking so much water and they're just kind of like looking at him like, ah, where'd you get this water? And he's drinking it and he's drinking it and he's totally unaware of his friends over there desperately needing water. He's just enjoying it. He swishes it around. He spits some on the ground. Then he throws his canteen. It falls over and more water spills out that he could have shared with his friends. He pulls out some chapstick. And at the very last minute, he finally notices them after he puts the chapstick on his lips. And he's like, lip balm? Do you you want some chapstick? Is that what you need? And it's a scary warning for us, right? Because if we're followers of Christ, we actually have the living water. and We can be completely oblivious to others. So the call in the text is, come to me. I'm the source of living water. But there's also this broader sense of, make sure you're helping your friends see that as well. Make sure you're helping others recognize where the living water is found in Jesus. Don't offer them self-help. Don't offer them religion. Don't offer them chapstick when they're desperately thirsty for something that only God can satisfy. So the call is to satisfy ourselves in him and then to share that with those around us. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you do satisfy our souls. You are the living water. We pray that you would teach us what it means to depend on you day by day. Help us to practice what it means to depend on you by your Spirit, continually entrusting ourselves to you rather than looking at ourselves. Help us to see the the glories of what Jesus has provided us through his death and resurrection. Help us to recognize that this was not something that came out of the blue, but something you've been promising for hundreds and thousands of years. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.